Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. For most of us, woke ideology began, oh, several years ago as mildly amusing that people would believe such things. Then became slightly alarming, and now within the last month or so, genuinely alarming as we see woke mobs, groups of students on virtually every college campus marching in favor of, well, organized terrorism and often carrying symbols of hate and anti-Semitism. Now, some have woken up. Now, not woke, but woken up from wokeness when they see this end result. Others still cling to the ideology with all their lives. Why? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to help understand the strategy of woke ideology Noelle Maring, she's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of the book Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology, and a column for The Federalist titled How Wokeness Puts Its Defenders in a Chokehold and How to Help Them Out. Noelle, welcome back. Great to be back. Was the Woke Coalition a peaceful movement up until October 7th and its subsequent support of the terrorist government of Hamas? No, uh, no, it was never meant to be a peaceful movement. It was always meant to be a revolutionary movement, encouraging people to internalize reductive binary. Then every conflict, there's an oppressed identity group that can justify any means necessary against their oppressor. And so I think what we're seeing with the Hamas is just the playing out of that on a, a more escalated scale. But it's already been happening with the feminists and the transgender movement what once were allies among the feminists saw their support and their allyship quickly discarded once more destabilizing movement like the transgender movement came on the scene. So the point, I think, of the woke coalition is really to keep dividing people. And that division has to happen in more and more amongst more identity groups, including turning on people who are, quote unquote, their own. You say the disentangling oneself from wokeism is like leaving a cult. What do you mean? Cults are notoriously controlling and manipulative, and I think the woke movement really operates similarly because they seed such foundational lies, both anthropologically, what a human person is, but also spiritual lies. And in order to maintain a narrative and have a foundational lies persist, you have to take control over that narrative because it can't withstand any real scrutiny, it can't stand up to argumentation. And so it becomes inevitably incredibly controlling. And there are various levels, I think, of the psychological manipulation at play. But I talk about it in three main categories and three main stages, what, moving from a manipulation on the basis of pity, next to fear, and then eventually to force. So it, it sort of starts out as an appeal to compassion, and then it preys upon fear of social and civic retribution, and then eventually moves through a top-down force through laws, coercive laws, through corruption of agencies and institutions, and ultimately to violence. And being able to spot those lies and those forms of manipulation is 
really crucial, I think, in order to disentangle ourselves from this movement. Let's go through those three stages one by one. How does the appeal of woke ideology begin with an apparent appeal to compassion? Yeah, so this first stage is the most subtle, and I think it's the one we're probably most familiar with. It's really effective, I think, because in any marginalized identity group, there are inevitably real examples of true injustices that ought to elicit a response and seeking a societal corrective. You can think about throughout the Me Too movement, there were plenty of examples of abusive male transgressions that really did warrant you know, a reaction. Similarly, with the BLM movement, there were true racial grievances, certainly an appalling history of them, that were any reasonable person who seeks justice and is built, understands themselves to be wanting to be a compassionate person is going to be very pulled in and compelled by that sort of appeal to injustice and trying to right those wrongs. There's a lot of uncomfortable excesses that come out of any sort of broad ideological social correction. And I think that a lot of people were able to kind of see past them, slogans such as believe all women or defund the police or even more severe ones like death to America, maybe gave people pause, but they, I think, translated them as just a sort of cry of people who had been targeted and felt that they wanted to seek some justice. And so I think a lot of goodwill people just sort of overlooked sort of the excesses and wanted to align themselves with walking with people who had been claiming a mantle of oppression. How does wokeism define people by those divisions? Yeah, I think this is one of the most key things to understand about the woke movement is that historically, we've always defined ourselves in ways that unite us to each other. So we would define ourselves as rational animals. We are united as human beings when we are separated from the beasts. And then in Christian language, we are defined as being made in the image of God. So we're defined through the love of God. And that gives us a gospel mission to go out and spread good news to other people that they too are defined by love. And the woke is a real and true inversion of that definition. So we are defined not by the love of God, but rather by the hatred of mankind, hatred in society. And so that gives a contra gospel mission for the woke to go out and get people woke, to raise their consciousness, to get them to see that though they might think that they have a decent life, there actually is a they're plagued with oppression, either oppression they are the victim of or oppression that is in their hearts that they need to unmask within themselves. And so this really starts to define people in ways that becomes an unbridgeable chasm that no longer can we reason together, no longer can we think together, no longer can we strive for true friendship. There's always a power dynamic at play that has to be unmasked and identified. Um, and this really encourages society into a toxic form of tribalism where we are finding our moral stature and our ability to find the evil in everyone else and never within ourselves. What's the second stage of woke ideologies appeal? The second stage is a manipulation by fear. And I think even oftentimes people start to suspect that something's amiss in the ideology, but they still want to seem that they appeal appear to be compassionate. And so that really keeps people from speaking out as well, because there's a real social shaming that, that the movement operates on if you sort of don't stand in 100% alignment with them. But the fear is also through not only social condemnation, but also civic retribution. So think about in the workplace, how many people sit silently through DEI trainings or offer their pronouns in their Zoom profile at meetings because they just would rather not deal with any sort of repercussions professionally. 
But we also see, you know, that even if somebody is independent, there's our platforms like YouTube uh, that can have demonstrated already that they will instantly wipe out entire avenue of income for people who are saying things that are not aligned with the woke movement. So there's a lot of fear, I think, of the repercussions that come from speaking out. And that's a really powerful manipulation because people have an innate sense of belonging to belong. They have a fear of being ostracized and the movement really capitalizes on those needs and those fears. In that vein, why is social condemnation a necessary part of woke ideology? I think that people need to feel that they have approval, the approval of their community, of their friendships, even the approval of strangers on the internet. Now that social media has absolutely brought the whole world into our personal lives, there's a lot of power in that platform and the the feeling of being you know, shamed, certainly on that heightened escalated level, can feel really overwhelming for any normal human being. And so you know, it takes a lot of not only courage, but an ability to kind of see that it really is manipulation of vapor, that it really mounts to ultimately nothing if strangers online are condemning you. But you have to kind of see through the manipulation in order to get to that ability to withstand it. How does wokeism use civic retribution? I think we've seen this pretty plentifully throughout um, social media, that there are ways in which employers might see that if you've spoken out, against the movement, you can have repercussions in your workplace, even being fired. We've seen a lot of censorship in order to control the narrative. Pro-lifers have been incredibly targeted in ways that would never be targeted had they been aligned with the ideology. There really seems to be an escalation of selective intimidation tactics being deployed that really not only affects the people who are the victims of it, but also silences a lot of people who are just observing it or seeing the news stories. Describe the force stage of wokeism strategy. Yeah, I think the fear stage blends pretty quickly into the force stage and they tend to overlap. So what's normalized first through compassion in a weaponized way and then through fear and silence quickly can become codified into law, into policy. And we're seeing this, the fear that was fostered through the sort of civic retribution is really a top-down effort at forcing upon society you know, the correct behavior and weeding out any dissent. I think we're also seeing this largely in the schools, this forced spoon-feeding of gender ideology, even in grammar schools, not to mention for older students. The media's corruption and the way that the mainstream media runs defense for the sake of all of this. But it's not just institutional, this sort of institutional corruption It's also, you know, I think as we're seeing very painfully now, a a force in the form of violence. And I think that we've been seeing, particularly in the month of October, with a really disturbing celebration of terrorism amongst woke college students and professors all throughout the country and beyond, you know, all throughout the West. I think this is showing that the force stage is not just a top-down effort at coercion, but rather it's rage boiling over also into the streets and a justification of violence itself. So how does the force stage present something of an opportunity for those who oppose wokeism? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is the stage that feels, I think, the most alarming, but it's also the stage in which a lot of people start to see through it. So the movement really becomes more exposed than it was before. When it seemed like it was a movement based on compassion and tolerance, then people could easily overlook any sort of uncomfortable elements of it. But once it becomes this sort of real forceful stage, 
people start to wake up. I think we saw that earlier on when feminists saw themselves being discarded for the sake of the trans movement, but also we're seeing it pretty clearly now. I think a lot of Jewish people in the West who had considered themselves heretofore pretty woke or progressive have seen themselves utterly discarded. And I think it makes not only them, but people who care about them start to wonder, well, what did this movement really stand for all along? And so there's a real hope that I think is embedded in that, that people are sort of breaking the spell of the ideology. And I think we need to be aware of that and facilitating it because it's going to be a hidden change that's happening in people's minds and hearts. But eventually they'll start speaking out more and more. And I think that we're seeing the beginnings of that. In particular, how has the last month and the widespread woke support for terrorism, sometimes open anti-Semitism, awakened many to what woke really is? I think it's really shown that the lie of the first two levels of manipulation, for one thing. I think it shows that it was never meant to be a movement of compassion. And particularly, I think that what's showing is that there's no moral principle applicable to all human beings that the woke movement will promulgate, that everything, all behavior, moral right and moral wrong are based not on principle, but rather on identity. And so you can justify anything at that point, depending on who is doing it. And people have an innate sense of fairness that that really runs contrary to. And I think people who are willing to see that clearly with a fair-minded way, who have not succumbed too deeply into sort of the belligerence of ideology, know that this is unjust, that there's no terrorism that can ever be justified, that there are principles of just war. I think most people intuit that on some level. And so I think this last month, the month of October, has really shaken and sort of shattered a lot of paradigms for people. And that's good. They're asking questions and speaking out more and it needs to be encouraged. What is keeping so many in the woke camp? I think there are three main obstacles that keep people from sort of taking that exit off ramp from wokeism. One is power. A second one is complicity. And the third one, I think, is really a a sort of woundedness. So, you know, the power, I think, is there's some intoxication, I think, in sort of feeling that you've been pulled into the right side of history and that you're fighting for justice. And there's a sort of righteousness and a virtue that is projected onto the person once they adopt the right ideas, the right ideology. And it's hard to see through that. It's, there's also a level of complicity. So I think on mul- in multiple ways, the movement operates by getting people to become complicit with it, not only in the sense that they've adopted a lie and there's a complicity to that, but also that they are encouraged to shame other people, to betray old friends, to encourage things even as horrific as childhood transitioning for the sake of gender ideology. And that complicity really keeps people from, I think, wanting to face either what they've done or how they've behaved. For anyone, it's hard to face our complicity. It's incredibly difficult for all human beings. But the movement really thrives on people being so captured by that complicity that they're unable to really face it. And so I think that we can help them by being the type of people who are not going to sort of spike the football if they change their minds and if they start questioning the ideology that they adopted and defended before. You know, I think we should be the type of friends that are encouraging and questioning and not making it easy in the sense that we are trying to encourage them to not really think too deeply about it, but rather that we are not 
going to humiliate them, that it's good for them to change course. And they become people who then can encourage other people to change course. But the third one, I think, is really sort of a, a real woundedness. The movement really operates by breaking people. We've seen that with the sexual revolution, how many social pathologies that really have names and numbers behind them, that that sort of pain and disharmony and lacking of, you know, kind of basic human goods, like healthy family life or a real true sense of belonging significance leads to people who are seeking it in either tribalistic ways or political ways or various other ways that are not good for them. And so, you know, I think just remembering that the revolution happens not from a whole society of healthy, harmonious people, but rather from a very broken one. And so we really need to be able to see that there are true pain that people have been experiencing and that the movement has exploited and help them to kind of heal from that. Noel Merring is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of the book Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology and a column for The Federalist titled How Wokeness Puts Its Defenders in a Chokehold and How to Help Them Out. You'll find a link to it and to Awake Not Woke at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Noel, thanks. Thanks for having me. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss pushing Roe v. Wade over the brink with Clark Forsyth of Americans United for Life. And we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about paying taxes to Caesar in Matthew chapter 22. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.